Welcome to the Book Table Podcast. It's another week. I'm Fee, and I'm joined by always the lovely Annie. Hi. And the wonderful Sophie. Hey. I'm um, enjoying this... having epithets. Yeah, you're enjoying <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad my compliments aren't going to waste. Um, this week is our book news episode where we talk about any book news articles that have taken our interest or we would like to talk about and yeah we hope you enjoyed the episode okay so first bit of book news I'm gonna come to you Sophie okay you're coming to me I didn't expect that (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh I don't know why I didn't expect that. I was just like, what? I have to speak first? How dare you? No, okay. Uh, my piece of Yeah, that felt me- pointed and personal. <laughs> I felt like a teacher. My, my piece the of, power this, of a teacher. Is this what I get for like not, like I didn't do the homework properly, <laughs> so I have to speak first in class now. Is that what this yeah, is? Yeah, teachers know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my, my piece of book news was like generously loaned to me by Annie. Um, but it's a very cool story about how um, there are now women, uh, Yiddish scholars are now publishing and translating works written by Yiddish women like a few decades ago, um, sort of for the first time. Uh, and like the process that some of them are going through is actually kind of insane. Like they're scrolling through old newspapers from decades ago trying to find like novels that got serialized in them so they can compile them and publish them and yeah it's just really cool and really good that they're rescuing books that like might be completely erased like these could easily have just vanished Mm. into history and they never would have really been recorded or read by anyone but they're kind of rescuing literature from a minority group that you know didn't kind of get a voice and yeah I just think that's really, really good that there are people out there that are like dedicated to the preservation of literary history, in particular, literary history from marginalized voices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so important as well, because so often we hear, oh, you know, there are fewer books from women writers in pre-19, I don't know, 1920, because women weren't writing as much. But projects like this, I think, show that actually they were and their voices are out there if we're able to find them yeah. you know yeah um, so are they compiling them into like a, a huge book full of the these stories or is no, it I think they're each... publishing sort of each book I think is getting published oh, by yeah. well, the author I think at least some of the ones that they've published so far have been it probably depends on the length of the book like I think one of them um that got published is like uh in the diary of a lonely girl um that was written in the late 1940s and has now sort of been published properly as its own book um and i think they've also uh there was there was another one a jewish refugee in new york city which is about a girl that's like fled the nazis and is now living um with relatives in america so i think they are kind of publishing them as their own Mm. books um the um oh which one was it called there was this description of one of them that I loved. Uh, yeah, in a review for Tablet magazine, Dara Horn compares The Diary of a Lonely Girl to Sex and the City, Friends, and Pride and Prejudice. Oh, 
stunning. That is, yeah, that sounds yeah. so good. It's published in nineteen sixteen. Like, Whoa, and it's like a very feminist kind of book. Like it's about, you know, it's about sort of sexuality and that kind of, you know, men were encouraged to kind of have unrestrained sexuality and that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, but not and how that impacts upon women which are essentially kind of things that are still very much present today so this is a book that I think from reading the article that readers are still kind of still resonating with now so it's really good that it's kind of been yeah preserved in this way I think that also being able to resurrect these types of works from long ago and give it a new life as it were is so good because we don't get to hear these stories and I think you're so right like it's not like these stories weren't written we just need to find them I imagine a lot of women wrote stories to express how they felt during that time when I guess their voices were quite suppressed and I think those works are so important to be out there and to be able to be read by future generations yeah no definitely one thing I'll say though is so at the moment because obviously it's an academic project and an academic translation project um it's they're published by I'm pretty sure Syracuse University Press um Mm -hmm. yeah Syracuse Mm -hmm. University Press um university presses are great I love them but it would be nice to see some of these novels maybe you know the most popular ones or like get more mainstream attention and uh, like I think a university press is obviously a great place for them to be right now but it would be really nice to see a sort of a broader audience um yeah obviously that's not what limitations does university presses like have so a university press it will normally be much more expensive Mm. Uh, that the books will be much more expensive and the print run will be a lot smaller they won't print as many copies and it won't go to bookshops and be in mainstream public be talked about in mainstream publications obviously this is we're cribbing this from an article in the new york times so that's not entirely the case here but it's it's very different from being published by i don't know penguin or random house or something because it it's university presses often publish with the imagining a smaller audience and a very sort of highly specialized audience right um so these are going to be edited in a way to try and have them be studied whereas i think i would also like to see more sort of mainstream paperback versions of these novels you know yeah like i really hope that this is like a first stage phillips because it feels very much they're in Mm -hmm. sort of literary history preservation at the moment that's kind of what i think yeah the idea of this project kind of is and it would be great if once they've kind of done that for a little bit they could then start looking into or like you know you know find a way to then kind of get them out into like the general public so allow a wider audience of people to yeah read them. right i'm going to tell you my book news and that was on oh, wednesday at the time of recording this podcast in Tennessee, there was a huge book burning festival. I don't know what to call it, but 
a party gathering party witch hunt gathering um of kind of book rally rally yeah okay. probably the best one yeah that we've had so far and this is by a pastor in tennessee and they live streamed it on facebook um i have not watched it but <laughs> they were burning books like twilight and harry potter and um talking about i guess it's association with witchcraft or otherworldly natural things yeah supernatural stuff and i do you know what i remember a girl in our in my year who her i think her father was a um a priest i want to say um vicar or yeah vicar yeah and um she wasn't allowed to read harry potter or um twilight and because of their beliefs and because of of their religious beliefs but i i don't know i guess i i'm quite surprised that it's happening now uh just on how long these books have been around and i've never really heard any commotion about them weren't they when they first came out or they they were at least encouraging people to burn harry potter when it first came out yeah i think i think but I think we've sort of, there might have been in sort of, you know, the early 2000s movements, but we've mm-hmm. been having sort of maybe a decade of, no, um, of, Harry's of, of, of these things being much less common and much less visible, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. And I think also this is notable, not just because they're burning Twilight and Harry Potter, but because it sort of sits on the crest of a wave of like serious stories about censorship in american schools censorship. yeah um, yeah i feel like tennessee is a, like kind of where it's happening the most like with mouse being banned by a tennessee board and now these book burnings happening in tennessee i i don't know if there are other um cities or states which are going through a similar sort burning, of thing i think probably yes i'm not sure about the burning i think there are a lot of school boards well there's just a lot of local authorities in the moment imposing their weird rules because america yeah just- i think there is a movement in american politics focused on schools at the moment what with the whole critical mm-hmm. race theory kerfuffle kerfuffle the whole critical race theory you know basically conspiracy theory um for those of you who don't know, uh, critical race theory, there are there is a wave of um, right wing and Republican politicians in the US talking about the problem with teaching critical race theory in schools. Um, now, critical race theory is something that you won't be taught in a school. It's a it's a specialism in yeah. academic law. So if you're being taught critical race theory, you're doing at least a bachelor's in law you're not it's not in public schools um but there has Mm. been a wave of using this sort of umbrella term of critical race theory to try and um control the talking about race in schools and discussions of um black history and african-american uh african-american literature and those sorts of things sort of under the banner of oh we're banning critical race theory 
kind of thing. And I think that as a, that to me will inevitably lead to the sort of the, the rise in banning of books, which apparently has happened. Um, the American Library Association has said it recently, has said it has recently seen an unprecedented rise in book ban requests. It counted 130 books, no, 330 books that were challenged as objectionable in the fall of 2021 compared to 156 in all of 2020. I mean, I'd, I'd love to know what sort of books are being banned and then what, on what precedents they're being banned for, because I was reading an article of why mouse had been banned and I would have thought, oh, maybe it's because it's talking about the Holocaust or something like, like what, I mean, what was the reasoning behind it? And their justification for it was mainly on the precedence of nudity and words. I would say, personal opinion, I think they're using that as an as a cover for as being anti-Semitic. Yeah. I think they don't want to yeah. teach them about the Holocaust, but they also don't want to say that they don't want to teach them. So they're like, well, we can't have this book. It's got profanity and nudity. Yeah, but like that's what I think is going. The on thing there. is, the report. <laughs> Call me a conspiracy theorist. In the report, it was like they said, "Oh, we it's a terrible thing that happened," and it it just sounds like such a an excuse do you know what I mean like yeah I think it's very disingenuous John Green um sort of favorite author of the pod and uh also the author of Looking for Alaska a book that is frequently banned in schools had a really great statement on this mm. I think um Looking for Alaska has one like uh, not very explicit scene like I definitely wouldn't I think you know it's an age-appropriate scene for a young adult novel um, but it also has a lot of smoking and swear words in it, I think. Mm -hmm. And John Green put out a really good statement on, uh, on all of this, really. He said, It is disheartening to see Looking for Alaska on so many banned book lists as a new wave of challenges spreads through US libraries and schools. I am so grateful to all the teachers and librarians fighting for the freedom to read. What's especially frustrating this time is to see Alaska used as a cover so these banned lists complain it's not all about race. Most of the books being banned or challenged in this wave are by Black authors, including works by Nobel laureate Toni Morrison, and books by Ibram X. Kendi, Jason Reynolds, and Angie Thomas. Books like Beloved and The Bluest Eye and Stamped and The Hate You Give and The Long Way Down and Their Eyes Were Watching God are essential to any high school or public library's collection, and also books that can deeply enrich the lives of students when read in English class. Mm -hmm. And trying to eliminate these books from curricular and collections is white supremacist ideology at work. It harms publishing, it harms kids, it harms America. Um, I thought that was a really great, I, I really liked how he moved there from the, from the banning of looking to Alaska to sort of addressing how, yes, this is not, a book by a person of color or really sort of central, like it doesn't focus on narratives of people of color, mm. but its presence on the lists doesn't mean that these books, that it's not in general a wave of banning books specifically to, yeah, super specifically to push a white supremacist ideology. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, obviously, is a huge number of the books being banned in these libraries at the moment are books with um, 
LGBTQ plus <laughs> characters and narratives. Um, and that is something, so the most banned book of 2020, according to the American Library Association, mm. uh, is a book by George, called George by Alex Gino. Um, and I wanted to flag that up because, uh, uh, hold on, please, please cut me struggling with this. I mean, do you want me to like fill time for a second while you talk? Yeah, yeah. Because I was just going to say, like, about as far as like banning, you know, books and how it can harm kids. Like, I know that I personally, um, as someone that identifies as aromantic asexual, would have benefited hugely from consuming media that included that kind of representation when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. It can do a world of good for your mental health if you are a queer teenager and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you are to see and realize that there are other people like you. Yeah. And that mm. is just one of the ways that like this censorship can really, really hurt the mental health of young people. And I think also it, it kind of takes us away from diversifying our reading and understanding stories in the um the viewpoint of other people that are different from yourself because you get to understand somebody else's perspective through reading and mm. so yeah go for it yeah yeah, yeah 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 so the thing I wanted to flag was that the most banned book of 2020 which is uh the most recent data I can find is a book called Melissa by um Alex Gino until April 2022 it was called it was published under the title George by Alex mm. Gino um, and it's a novel about a young transgender girl who um, uses uh, a class play to try and explain to her classmates uh, no to show her mother that she is a girl by switching roles with her best friends and playing the part of Charlotte common reasons for challenging the book include that it's sexual references included sexual references, this is a children's book, um, and conflict with traditional family structure, <sighs> with some saying schools and libraries should not put books in a child's hand that require discussion. See, this is the, this is um, such an, a huge... It was the fifth most banned book of the decade between 2010 and 2020, and it was only published in 2015. That's, it just... Do you remember in high school how we wanted to do an assembly on oh god yeah <laughs> on like not just I mean we wanted to do an assembly yeah. on um LGBTQIA plus community and uh, their history and we wanted to do an assembly on mental health and we wanted to do an assembly on feminism and all of those assemblies got challenged because they thought oh, it's not for consumption of the younger years. And the thing is, it's yeah. like by avoiding that conversation, by avoiding talking about it, we're just suppressing the existence of loads of people in our society. Shout out to the fact that we were in all girls school and they were like, feminism? That, yeah, what the fuck? Your whole motto was, we are raising you to be good young women, but you were like, feminism, that is a step too far, get back to the kitchen. Yeah. You'll be educated. 
<laughs> women in the kitchen like <laughs> like honestly what did they think was gonna happen like we were gonna set the school on fire or something or I don't know maybe we, they were terrified that we'd turn up and like burn bras in the I mean in the end something. we did hang out all our bras in the, in the in the anyway but um I I love that there was in the crowd of of book burners there was one um a counter protester who held up copies of Fahrenheit 451 and on the origins of species and um and they threw a book into the fire that he said was the bible also, like I, I cannot imagine being the lone counter protester I like know. I don't think she's scared of that mob like I mean yeah <laughs> what a rebel what a hero yeah but there's something quite scary that how I mean I remember reading Fahrenheit 451 I also recently read in January in Watermelon Sugar and both of these books are kind of post-apocalypse sort of settings and both include kind of the the burial of past society and that includes mm -hmm. books and literature like it just doesn't have a place for their world anymore and I think it's kind of I think one has is like actively doing it for control and then I think in mm. and that's what Fahrenheit 451 but in, in Watermelon Sugar they were talking about um, the the main author wants to write a book and it's in first person and you kind of are trying to understand the context that he's writing as he's going along it's like he opened up a diary and started mm. from that day <laughs> and went onwards and he keeps talking about forgotten works and also his friends come up to him and say oh how's the book going nobody's written a book for like 35 years nobody's read a book for ages and it's almost not the it's not suppressing literature but it's like we don't need it like we're happy where we are we don't want to progress we just want to live in this kind of state forever so it's almost mm -hmm. like opening up a book and understanding somebody else's point of view takes them away from that and I guess that all comes from a sense of fear. And I just kind of wonder what yeah. it is that, what, I guess when it comes to people in, and, and deciding to ban a book, you have to, I just assume it has to be from fear and something that challenges their ego rather than wanting to take it away from other people. I mean, I think, I, I think it's just also about, prejudice you know it's about it's about but it's about denying the existence of a community yeah often you know and and but also wanting to sort of erase that community by you know making sure they don't get to the children kind of thing um yeah it's almost like oh this community shouldn't be on children's radar it's like but these children may become part of that community yeah. and by by keeping that away from them 
you're taking away their right to access knowledge or even just you know these children might grow up to be slightly less prejudiced than the people trying to take the books away from them you know yeah yeah. and to do that they'll need books like it's that statement about um melissa the book where someone says you know children shouldn't be given books that require discussion no that's the whole point of children reading they should be you know learning your children should be talking to you about what they're reading your children should be asking questions because of what they're reading they should be you know in an age-appropriate context they should be challenged by the books that they read yeah yeah and that includes thought provocation and discussion and introducing them to unfamiliar things I mean that's why we have art and all these these different formats of art to consume art whether that's in the form of literature or visual painting or music or whatever mm-hmm. that mm. is creative expression and is often linked to identity and community yeah it's I think it's really just heartbreaking to read that this stuff is going on yeah um one final thing yeah have either of you saying this I'm pretty sure uh so if you're on this school trip with me to Berlin where we saw the band books memorial uh no I wasn't on that trip you didn't go I to Berlin? On that trip no I Maybe. think I was like didn't apply in time or something I don't know I could have sworn you were anyway okay you didn't go to Berlin sorry but I was on a school trip to Berlin have either of you ever I've been... been to Berlin yeah yeah and I've, seen the band I've books memorial no. I think so yeah yeah so um obviously ban- uh burning books in particular was a big thing in nazi germany as immortalized in among other things the book people uh not the book people the book thief the bo- yeah <laughs> the book people as immortalized in the book thief um but there is a really touching memorial in berlin to sort of you know the banned books um where a lot of book burning happened there is this massive like underground bookshelves with like a a glass plate in the floor which is the ceiling of these underground bookshelves so you can see it and the bookshelves represent space that would have been taken up by by copies of the books that were burned on that site Mm. um and it's it's a really really poignant memorial um sort of memorializing the absence of these books if you will but the other thing I really like about it is that I believe on weekends there's a book market there, or at least there was the day I went there. And that to me was just like a really vibrant, positive markation of change, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I thought just the fact that, you know, you have this memorial of banned books and that meant that it was also a good place for a book market. Um, it was just, I found it hopeful and so I'm gonna hopefully we can you know it is a terrible yeah. thing that's happening banning of books in schools but hopefully that's a yeah on a on a lighter note with that <laughs> I I also just <laughs> I just like I'm just laughing at the thought of being like them I don't know <laughs> just with twilight books <laughs> <laughs> just like <laughs> these sparkly vampires these demons yeah like like 
have you read the books? You feel like Twilight would actually fit into their agenda pretty well. Yeah, Twilight, Twilight was written by a Mormon. Like, no sex and... before marriage. You will marry yeah. that yeah. woman, and only then may you like. Yeah, it's pretty traditional shit, man. If you take out the fact that he's a vampire, it's very mundane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, Twilight was written by a Mormon, and it has sort of. It's not explicitly Mormon, but it's definitely ideologically Mormon. Stop. I never knew that. Why didn't yeah. I know that? See, I only mm. retained, I probably only retained the other bit of the information, which was it was a fan fiction of my her and my chemical romance. Annie, would you like to start with your news? Yeah, so um I have a couple of Dublin sort of Dublin-centric book news. Um, the first of which I just want to very briefly mention that last Tuesday, no, last Wednesday maybe, was the 100th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses by James Joyce. Um, don't feel bad if you haven't read Ulysses, most people haven't read Ulysses, but um, so I just wanted to, that there's a lot Right now, there are a lot of resources and information about how to read Ulysses, I believe. Anne Enright, an Irish author and an academic at UCD, um, did a lot of sort of a reading guide to Ulysses in The Guardian. And I think there's probably a lot of other stuff out there. I think the Museum of Literature Ireland, the Molly, M-O-L-I, also had a lot of stuff about how to read Ulysses and why to read Ulysses. So I just wanted to put this in here as you know, if you've ever wanted to read it or even just give it a go or, you know, dip in and read a little bit of it, now is probably the perfect time because there is a lot of sort of resources and information out there. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's a good book. I don't regret reading it, um, but it's... That's a it's, good start. <laughs> it's very difficult, it's very but it's also very enjoyable. Um, but the bigger... Well, not the bigger piece of Dublin book news, but the piece of Dublin book news that I really want to highlight is um, on the 31st of January, the long list for the Dublin Literary Awards 2022 came out. Now, this is, uh, long-term listeners will know, I love me a good book award and the Dublin Literary Awards is probably, to my mind, the best. So um, it's a very long, long list. I believe it's 80 books. I will not be reading the entirety of this long list. Um, but it's so long because they um, uh, the books are nominated by library consortiums um, from across the world. I My geography is terrible, but I think I worked out that there were libraries from all habit inhabited continents um, nominating books, which is really exciting. Habited? Inhabited? Anyway, library consortiums from all over the world have nominated uh, books and um, I believe the statistics is there are 94 participating libraries from all over the world nominated 80 novels and this to me is the coolest thing. Um, so the reason why they have this really unique way of creating the long list is to try and get as diverse and as international a list, a long list as possible. So it can be either novels written originally in English or translated novels, which I think is quite where often 
translated novels will be in a separate awards category. It's also the world's most valuable literary prize, uh, standing at 100,000 euros. Um, and that's through sponsorships from Dublin City Council, uh, the International Literature Festival of Dublin and RTE Supporting the Arts. Um, and what a, the other thing I really like about this is if it's a translated work, the prize money is split. Uh, 75,000 euros go to the author and 25,000 euros go to the translator. Um, like I said, the long list is very long. Oh, yeah. Uh, just to ask, do most, do any other prizes do that, that where they give uh, a proportion of money to the translator when um, they submit? They have international work. I would imagine that, so uh, I think the international booker uh, probably does something like that but to me the significance of this is that it's pitting it's putting um books written in english and translated books on an equal footing yeah so it's mm -hmm. fifty thousand yeah. shared equally between the author and the translator for the booker um so for the international booker so um it's worth a lot more for the author than it is for the translator in the dublin literary award but the thing that I like about this is that it's a prize that sort of understands uh, English compositions and translated works sort of on an equal footing. And because uh, they let libraries from all around the world nominate books, mm -hmm. um, there are a huge, there's a huge variety of international books. Um, I really would recommend just sort of going through and um, clicking on the long list books. Um, every book you can read uh, a sort of a, a blurb, I suppose, of the book about the author and then the comments from the librarians who submitted it. Um, and I think what I really, one of the things that I really like about this is I think libraries who submit books will often sort of take a lot of pride in submitting books that represent their locality. And so, you know, for instance, I just clicked on a random book. It's called In Memory of Memory by Maria Stepanova, and it was nominated by the All Russia State L Library for Foreign Literature, Russia. Um, but then we can. Great book. I read it last year, I believe. Um, it was submitted by Miami-Dade Public Library in the United States. Um, and then you can look on something like October, mm. October Child by Linda Bostrom Mousegard, um, submitted by Oslo Public Library in Norway. Um, I just think this is a really great literary award. It's a really... Um, it's a really innovative way of awarding books to me. Um, and as someone who is a very keen follower of sort of the book awards as they happen, I think this is a really good one to watch, um, especially because it is so interested in centering libraries. Yeah. Do you know how long have the, um, has this award been going on for? Um, I don't know, actually. I What I can tell you, which is probably not... Um, oh, it's 
the 27th year of the award oh so, okay quite recent. yeah it's quite recent yeah yeah um but i think it's sort of it's well established now it's definitely like i first became aware of it when i first came to dublin um which is weird because it it's sort of i think it's it's one of those things that is based in ireland and so you hear about it a lot when you're in ireland but it is really interested on a with having a big international focus and a big sort of international reach and thinking about um yeah i just i love everything about if if i was to design a literary award it would probably look <laughs> something like this and i am very glad that someone else has done it because it takes <laughs> a lot of money and effort to design a literary award <laughs> um yeah. just very briefly I want to highlight, obviously, some very good books that I have already read on the list includes Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro um, and No One's Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood um, and The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pitt Williams. But there are also a lot that I'm really excited about reading. Um, for instance, um, Olive by Emma Gannon, um, mm. and which is uh about a woman whose best friend's life branched away toward marriage and motherhood leaving the path they've always followed together olive starts to question her choices because life according to olive looks a little different um or the disaster tourist by Jan koyan um which i just love the cover of um just a woman lying in sand on the beach um looking just completely exhausted <laughs> and done with everything um my spirit animal she's it's about a woman who works as a programming coordinator for jungle a travel company specializing in package holidays to destinations ravaged by disaster nominated by butchie on uh, city library in south korea um so i just wanted to highlight this if you're looking for something to read it's a really great list. It's sort of like asking all of the best librarians in the world, hey, what do you think I should read? It's really cool. Um, and I imagine there is something on that list for everyone. Oh, I just imagine like a little network of libraries all like chatting to each <laughs> other going, oh, which one did you choose? Oh, we chose this one. Which one did you choose? We chose this one. Yeah. That's so cute. Well, I think it also said something that 94 libraries came up with a short list of 80 books. You know, it's really diverse selection. Yeah. And that's yeah. really cool. Great. OK, so now we're moving on to our what are we reading section of the podcast. So what have you guys been reading um, over this month that excludes our um, book month? book month book club pick of the month so um yeah Annie do you want to go first yeah I will I just finished um listening to a really great book um A Town Called Solace by I believe her name was Mary Lawson and it's sort of set in Canada in the 1970s about sort of the intertwined lives of three people as they sort of cope with the sort of traumas of past and present which sounds like a really difficult book right 
but it's called a town called Solace. And I think it's really about how by rooting themselves in their communities and by um, communicating with each other, they can get solace from each other. It's not necessarily everything is okay, mm. so much as there is solace to be found in other people. And I thought it was a really beautiful book. Um, yeah, next on my list, I have a couple of books. Yep. She's reaching over for her book at the end of her bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first is one uh, that I got from a secondhand bookshop the other day. Um, it's called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, and it's about, I think, um, as far as I can work out, it's about um, sort of performing, traveling performers in a post-apocalyptic world, possibly a post-apocalyptic state station. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe there's a very successful, uh, I want to say HBO show that will probably be landing on um, Now TV any time, any day soon of this book. And so I really want to read it before the TV oh, comes cool. out. I also have a copy of A Court of Roses and Thorns that I have been meaning to read for oh, months now. Yeah. And so I'm bringing <laughs> that to the top of my list and saying that is a goal for the month. Everyone seems to love that book. I've I've heard of that book yeah, series and everyone seems to be like, have some sort of opinion on it and like- Differing opinions on it. People either seem to love it or hate it. It is the Marmite of books. Oh, that's fascinating. I've only seen positive things. Maybe I'm just very sheltered. <laughs> anyway, that's my books. That's my reading update. So, what about you guys? I recently finished listening to- the Charm Offensive by Alison Cochran, which I posted a mini review of on Instagram. Um, I was listening to that one a little bit when I was working. That was a really, really fun listen. And I also just finished reading The Women of Troy by Pat. And, I, and he's making a weird hand sign. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Sorry, I, I was, I kept on thinking that you were going to say that you just finished reading Boyfriend Material. And every time you said, I just finished, I got really excited. <laughs> and then I was like, no, something else. <laughs> Apologies. Oh, I don't know. No, so I just, I don't... no, that was that was my excited <laughs> hands shake. Anyway, so the charm offensive is about uh, a young sort of tech entrepreneur who has sort of like fallen from grace, and to kind of convince people that he's back like on track with his life, he decides to go on a dating show called Happily Ever After. It's kind of like a bachelor esque show. Where you know you've got one man and then there's a sea of women that and at the end he like you know will choose to marry one of them uh Ooh. and working on this mm. uh show is dave dev i think it's Dave. i can't i'm not 100 sure how you pronounce his name uh anyway mm -hmm. uh and uh yeah instead of falling in love with any of the women on the show um charlie ends up falling for dev and as you can imagine sort of romance and drama ensues <laughs> and i also say that annie will like uh this because it has therapy endgame yes therapy yay, yay therapy <laughs> yeah we're team therapy yeah <laughs> lots of therapy um lots but yeah that was a really really fun listen and alison cochran has a book another book i think it's a sapphic romance coming out in 2022 so i'll definitely be reading that when it's out and I also just finished Women of Troy by Pat Barker which is a follow-up to Silence of the Girls 
and it was so good just really 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 good uh it follows Bryces immediately after the fall of Troy in kind of that period when the winds are keeping the Greeks at Troy and they're trying to leave and everyone's getting really really stressed about that and just kind of follows the aftermath of the war um and the death of Achilles and all of that and it's just how Barker writes Bryces so well and the one thing that she does that's really interesting is I think in Silence of the Girls she included like chapters that were from Achilles' perspective this book she does mm-hmm. that with um Harris aka threw a baby oh, off son. a wall yeah son of Achilles yeah. threw a baby off a wall kind of a shit like yeah and it's really <laughs> really interesting to see something from his perspective it's because it doesn't excuse the things that he does but it does sort of contextualize them and he's a really interesting character he's essentially just a child who's trying to live up to his father's reputation and is as a result sort of doing all the things that he thinks that a greek man should do and yeah yeah, it's just it's just the way she writes is very human and it kind of you know contextualizes and shows the problem is not kind of it's a systemic issue it's a systemic a system that they're in a society that just perpetuates violence against women uh, at all levels, at all times. And so that's a really powerful mm-hmm. read. And I'm currently, I've almost finished Boyfriend Material, Annie. I've got like <laughs> an hour and a half to two hours after the audiobook. It's really good so far, really enjoying it. And I'm also oh, so glad you like it. I was worried I'd hyped it up too much. <laughs> no, 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 it is genuinely really good. Um, and then I'm also partway through reading uh, Under the Whispering Door by TJ Clune, which Anna gave to me for Christmas and also loving that. I get the TJ Clune hype and mm-hmm. I can't wait to steal Fee's copy of House of the Cerulean Sea so I can read that when I'm... Uh-oh. You're going to yeah. love it. It's not even steal it. You can't you. wait for me to post it to you. Yeah, like... <laughs> when it gets that, back that, in That's England, not Fee, it's me. I'm stealing it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway... <laughs> <sighs> all right hey what about you right my turn um so uh lately i've just finished a book last week um called uh the things we don't see by savannah brown mm-hmm. and it is a book which follows a 17 year old girl called mona who is um spending her summer on this u.s island um where it's got like it's a small town it's a small mysterious town where they have this kind of exchange program where the seasonals they call them which are these young people that kind of go there and work for the island while at peak season Mm. and so that uh so Mona is there because she uh wants to solve the missing uh case or uh, the murder mystery of um, Roxy Rains, who mysteriously disappeared 25 years ago. Um, and this is all for her podcast that she has. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Mm. It was so great. All the characters are so entertaining and complex. And it's just such great writing it's a nice easy thrilling read and yeah I loved it 
also um i'm currently reading the summer of broken rules by k a k a k l uh walter mm. and first off this cover is stunning and not only that it's a floppy book <laughs> so i'm already in love with just holding the book let alone reading it but um this follows the story of meredith um who has lost her sister claire uh in an accident and for around uh 18 months uh, she's kind of shut people out and this summer she's kind of ready to get back out and to kind of join the world again um, at her annual family vacation at Martha's Vineyard uh, for her I think it's her cousin's wedding yeah it's her cousin's wedding and um, yeah there's this family game that they play as well and there could be you know she's kind of falling for the groomsman and like um yeah it 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 sounds like it's going to be a really fun romantic read which is great it's what i need for february also i went to the tate yesterday the tate modern and i picked up this really cool zine and it's called token and it's got a little line through the middle of it Mm-hmm. and um it's just got some really cool um stories in there and i haven't really gotten through it yet but there's there's this one called blood and marzipan which kind of reminds me of the our book pick of the month which is um <laughs> rosalind palmer takes a cake well, i hope and... i hope there's no blood in yeah i haven't no blood yet. just marzipan <laughs> but I'm hoping that she's not baking any. Yeah, that that would be that would take things in a very interesting direction. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, it's really cool. I love finding little zines like this, or just like yeah. um, independent stuff, like pieces of work. It's just you know, it's so nice, and. There was a book, a, a children's book that I found that was on sale. Um, and it was called um, Baby, uh, Feminist Baby by um, Lauren Brantz. And he has like a little bib and he says, he's a feminist too. And it was just such a cute read. <laughs> and I just really wanted to get it for some I don't know I don't know any like babies or people who have babies but I really wanted to get it for someone's child did you buy it no I didn't um but I took a picture of yeah just just you know with your your your, yeah your lack of impulse control from another (laughs) it turns out there is a limit to your book buying oh no she just said she's in I didn't buy anything. Oh, hey, okay. well done. I know. So I, I, know. Like I, I did take photos. She's an addict, and we're like her AA meeting where we're giving her moral support. Like, well done. <laughs> See, we shift between that and being her enablers. That's the worrying thing, you know? Yeah, that's that's true, actually. The, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but I did take photos of books that took my, caught my eye. Um, so I will yeah. be patient and I will 
you know, kind of get them from a library. Uh, well, yes. Well, I I think these are sort of new releases, so I don't you think can get new can. releases from a library. And if you can't get your yeah, you can get new new releases often end up in libraries very quickly. And if you go to a library looking for a specific book and the library doesn't have it, ask mm. the librarians to get it because they are always keen to buy things because the readers at the library want to read them. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, to that to that caught my eye was um The Night Will Be Long, um by uh Santiago uh, Gamboa. I, and, and the life of the mind um by christine smallwood um i can't even remember what they were about but i know i took a picture of them and <laughs> that meant i was interested in buying them but refrained from buying yeah. and um yeah for for now that's kind of where i'm at cool cool i think okay. So I think that's the end of the, the this episode. Yeah. So as always, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And um, yeah, if you ever fancy getting in touch or, you know, have your own book opinions about any th- of the things we've mentioned or just anything you'd like to see in future episodes, just uh, DM us or, or write to us um, at the Book Table Podcast on Instagram and yeah next week we will be talking about um it's our chatty episode next week not that we don't chat but yeah we will chat even more um (laughs) it's on romance novels and their tropes and i'm quite excited for that one that's gonna be a juicy one (laughs) (laughs) the energy just instantly turned (laughs) so yeah so uh join us again next week and have a great week bye Bye. I've I've got. I'm sorry. I just have a piece of chocolate in my mouth. I was like, "Are you good to go?" And you nodded. I I was kind of nodding with my mouth closed and like being like, "Wait." I was like, "Are you good to go?" Wait. <laughs> You're gonna shake in your head. The universal sign symbol of no, I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now I'm really trying to eat the chocolate. Okay. <laughs> Annie, do you want to just dive in with your island related book news? No, I can do this. Wait. <laughs> right sorry Annie would you like to start with your news 